Lord, we pray that as we look at familiar words this morning, that you will perhaps bring us something in our hearts that is not that familiar to us today, that you'll challenge us in a new way. Or Lord, perhaps it's just something that needs reinforcing, that we've heard many times before, and that you just long to communicate to us again. So would your Holy Spirit open your word to us today, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Don't know if you saw this story on the news the other day about a pensioner, age 91, who's eventually retired. The story before this was that there was this man who was 88, and he said he was bored stiff. He was sat at home all the time. He said he was in good health, he could do all kinds of things, but he was fed up of not meeting anybody, not doing anything, and not having any purpose in life. So he put an ad in a local paper saying, man available for work. And he got a job in a cafe, and he's been working there for three years, and eventually he's decided enough's enough, and he's going to retire at the age of 91. If you were here last week, Gayla from Amor was here, and she was talking about how at the age of nine, she felt God call her to be a missionary. How God at that age, that early age, had called her to do something about leaving her home to share Jesus with another people group. A number of years ago, I used to go and volunteer with a homeless charity in Manchester. And I remember a number of times chatting to this man. And he was a man who'd had a career as a lab technician in one of the universities. <clears throat> and one day he said he woke up and decided he just couldn't cope with life anymore. So he walked out on his family and went and lived on the streets. And had been living on the streets of Manchester ever since. A really tragic, sorrowful, heartbreaking story. Those three stories are very different, aren't they? The first one probably makes us feel good. It's a feel-good story, isn't it, about somebody who's done something really out of the ordinary. The second one, the one that we heard last week from Gayla, hopefully is a story of inspiration to us, that God can call us, whatever age, to do all kinds of amazing things. And the third one is perhaps a story that makes us think, why and how on earth can that happen to somebody? How can somebody end up in that position? And we probably react differently to those three, but why do we react differently is this. None of those three stories fit in with our expectations. They're not what is expected of people. At the age of 88, you don't normally start on a new career. It's not what is expected. At the age of nine, you don't generally say, I'm called to be a missionary. You're normally playing with things or going outside or doing whatever, but you're not normally thinking about the mission field. And we don't expect people who've got a good job and security to ditch it all for life on the streets of Manchester. We just don't expect it. Expectation is hard, isn't it? Does anyone know what play that's from? No, I don't either. I'm just asking you because I want to, I want to know if anyone knew. But it's from Shakespeare, so it must be, must be deep. But we all live under expectation, don't we? We live under the expectation of ourselves, of our families, what, what we think people around us say we should be doing. We live under the expectations that our friends put on us the expectations that the broader culture puts on us that says we should do certain things at different times of life. So I want you to keep that thought of expectation in your mind as we look at this Palm Sunday passage together. Today, you may have noticed already, is Palm Sunday. And it means that we're looking at a story that is incredibly familiar to many of us. But it's a story that is worth retelling every year because there is so much going on in the Gospels at this point. 
But the familiarity of what we're looking at, actually a lot can get lost because of that. But in Mark's account, the account I've just read, and if you want to keep your Bibles open, you might find that really helpful, actually. He isn't just telling facts. He's not just telling us a series of events. Last Sunday, I had the real privilege of going around all the children's groups just to see what all our young people are up to. And one of the groups I love talking to is the sort of toddler type age. You know, little kids, when you ask them, what are you doing? They give it in a series of facts. Say, we did this, then we did this, then we did this. And there's no interpretation of events. It's just facts going along in a sort of trajectory. Mark isn't giving us a toddler's account here. There is massive depth in what Mark is saying. There are many layers going underneath. He links it back into Old Testament prophecy. The proclamation of the king in the line of David. Even the final destination, I don't know if you noticed it, that Jesus went to the temple. He went to the place of sacrifice. There is massive significance in what Mark is trying to get across here. So what does Mark want us to his readers to know? Well, quite a lot, actually. Far more than we can unpack this morning. But we'll have a go at some of it. Verses 1 to 7. There's a lot going on about the cult that Jesus rides on. And as we start getting into this story about a donkey, prophecies from the Old Testament start falling down like nine pins. It's amazing, isn't it, how God deals with the details in life and how often it's the details that speak of God's sovereignty. So what we get here is Zechariah 9, verse 9, being fulfilled. In those verses, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, Jesus coming in as king doesn't come in on the war horse. A couple of centuries before, there had been somebody who had ridden into Jerusalem on a war horse called Judas Maccabeus, who had come and chucked out a Greek empire. And this was still in people's minds, but Jesus was not like this. Jesus comes in peaceably and lowly. Some of the writers of the early church say, well, actually, this is even more than Zechariah 9, verse 9 being fulfilled. It goes back even to Genesis. I don't know if you know this verse from Genesis 49, verse 11, where it says, he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branches. He will wash his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. And this colt, this donkey that hasn't been ridden on, again, that is significant. You can go into Numbers 19, to read all about that, how an animal that has never been used may be used for God's purposes. So Jesus' very choice of transport makes an enormous statement. You know, we don't often think about that when we're choosing our choice of transport, do we? But in God's mind here, in God's economy, this cult is really significant. This is a sacred journey to the place of sacrifice, a prophesied journey that goes back even to before the Exodus, a journey that is divinely appointed, that Jesus knew about before it actually took place. So we've got the transport sorted. Now we move on to the crowds. It's Passover time. Jerusalem would have been busy. Jerusalem, normally, the historians reckon had about 40,000 people living in it. So that is, if you like, four times the size of Lim, so quite a decent-sized place. But at Passover, the population went up to about a quarter of a million. That's like fitting Warrington into Lim. So imagine how busy it was. Imagine how people were, how many people were around. And imagine if he said crowds. We do mean crowds. We don't mean 20 or 30 people, you know, stood with a few bits of twigs. This could have been thousands of people lining the streets. People who'd heard about Jesus. 
People who'd heard that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. People who'd heard about the miracles and the teaching who go ahead making these proclamations. And they get the palm branches. We don't actually see that in Mark, but we do in the other Gospels. And again, this is significant about the status of Jesus. Something about the royalness of Jesus there. And they take up the crowd, two shouts. Does anyone know where the shouts that the crowd take up come from? Psalm 118. You wouldn't think me and John had been preparing this this week, would you? (laughs) Psalm 118. But earlier in that psalm, before we get to the cries that we'll look at, there's another verse, and it's verse 22, and it says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then we get the cries that we find taken up on Palm Sunday. Lord, save us. That's the Hosanna. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. Can anyone remember what John said the meaning of Hosanna was? Save us. Another meaning, perhaps even more desperate, is salvation now. A real sense of urgency about salvation. Now, as John's already said, we think of salvation in terms of of sin, don't we? Of being saved from those things that we have done wrong and Jesus coming as saviour. We have that eternal angle and it's totally right and appropriate we do that. But the crowd here are desperate on a day-to-day level. And so they're calling out to God, save us now from Roman rule. Save us. And then they apply it to the psalm. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is God sent one who is coming. But I wonder if anyone in the crowd linked Jesus with that other verse from Psalm 118. That here will be the one who would be rejected, who turns out to be the cornerstone. So we're going to look in a moment at who is expecting what at this point. What are people expecting will happen next? Well, let's ask that question again of us, and let's keep this in our own minds. What expectations are being placed on you at the moment? And who's placing them? What expectations are there? What do your family, your friends, people in church, people around about you, people at work, what expectations do you place on yourself? And what does that say about what you value? What does it say? So let's have a look at the expectations of some of the different people who were around on Palm Sunday. First of all, the disciples, the followers of Jesus. These are the people who've been close to Jesus for getting on for three years. And as you read through the Gospels, you find out that they're starting to get a sense of who Jesus is. Peter has already said, this is the Christ. This is the chosen one of God. Some of the disciples had the amazing privilege of seeing the transfiguration, that event where Jesus was revealed in glory and majesty as the Son of God, as he truly is. But what were they expecting next on Palm Sunday? What did they expect to happen? Mark doesn't tell us, but I think if you go digging around a bit, you can probably find out some of the ideas. If you go to Acts chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? First century, it was really common in Israel for people to think that a Messiah was coming. That was nothing unusual. There was a sense that people were reading the Old Testament. They were seeing that God had more to do. They were seeing that there were promises yet to be fulfilled. But even after the resurrection and the crucifixion, the disciples still thought that the kingdom of God was the physical kingdom of Israel. They hadn't yet got this out of their mind. 
So they've got the who right, if you like, their expectations. They knew, or they were getting to know who Jesus was. But they hadn't quite got the what he would do right. What about the crowd? There were some signs that appeared on um, roads in Oxfordshire over the last week. I don't know if anyone saw this on the news. Just have a look at that for a moment so you can see if you can spot the wrong ones. We spot them? Middle Earth, Neverland, Gotham City, not Power Station A, where's that one on there? Emerald City down there. There was another one that said Narnia on it, but I couldn't find that one. And apparently, um, a young man in his 20s had been going round, writing on all these silly signs. (laughs) It's all in Didcot, which just as a matter of interest is where the Baptist Union has its headquarters. I'm not sure if there's any, (laughs) any link with that at that point. If the disciples' expectation is wrong, the crowd's is even worse. It's a bit like this kind of expectation, expecting to find the roots of the totally the wrong places. Some things are right that the crowd say. They take Psalm 118 correctly and they apply it to Jesus. This is the one who's coming in the name of the Lord. But the cry, Hosanna, the salvation cry for liberation is not actually right. They're misinterpreting it. It's the right cry, but with the wrong heart behind it. Because they're thinking of freedom from the Romans, not on eternal perspective, as what God is doing. You know, we can read the Palm Sunday accounts and we can forget the political life of the time. Any historians here today? No. I was going to ask if there's any political historians, but there aren't any historians, there won't be any of those either. But if you were writing a political history of the UK in about 20 years' time, and you were looking at Theresa May as Prime Minister, you can't separate her from Brexit. The two will be so linked in together, you won't be able to write one without writing the other. We can't look at Palm Sunday without looking at the freedom that people wanted from the Romans. This is the expectation so much that was on people's lips. And so the cries here crying out, as we've already seen this morning, a Christ of political freedom, free us from this lot, the Romans. Salvation now, Hosanna. Let's call in the Messiah who will get rid of the Romans. Third one, the religious leaders. Now, you're probably thinking the religious leaders are not in this passage. You are correct. They're not in this passage. So why talk about them? Well, because they appear rather a lot in the week that follows. And their expectations are probably totally different to the expectations of the others. They will be the ones who will condemn Jesus. They will be the ones who Judas will will hand Jesus over to in an act of betrayal. They are the ones who don't believe a word of what Jesus is saying. You've already said that Jesus is in league with Beelzebub, in league with the devil. These are the ones who would do anything to see Jesus removed. And again, probably a bit of politics going on here. Yeah, sometimes I think we wrongly believe that just because there was the hope of the Messiah in the first century, that there were loads of people claiming to be the Messiah. That actually wasn't the case. The next person after Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah was in the second century, quite a long way off. But there were people who came and tried to revolt against the Romans, and people who sort of botched that up. There was a man, and I can't even pronounce his name, but something like Anthrongius, that suppose we've ever heard of him. I'd never heard of him, so it doesn't really matter how we pronounce his name. And Simon of Perea, have you heard of him? Probably not. Footnotes in history, people who started a rebellion against the Romans and it never got anywhere. 
But these happened in the two decades before these events of Palm Sunday. So if you're a religious leader, you're probably thinking, well, this is how this story ends. The expectation of the religious leaders is that possibly Jesus would come in, try and raise some kind of army, it would all go horribly wrong, and they would end up trying to deal with the fallout from it. So the expectations of them are totally wrong. What all three groups have failed to do is to see what God is up to. In some way, they have not got the expectations right. You see, it's easy in life, I think, to have all kinds of expectations and yet to miss those very important things that God has for us. Those important things that God calls us to do. No one on Palm Sunday expected that in a week's time, or less than a week's time, Jesus, without a fight, would end up being crucified on Calvary. That was not in the expectation of the people on Palm Sunday. No one was expecting that a week today, Jesus would raise from the tomb as the conqueror of sin and death. They may have had other expectations, but it wasn't that. We see, Jesus wasn't interested in the human expectations. He wasn't interested in the story that people would place on him. He wasn't interested in the pressure groups who wanted him to become the warrior messiah. All he was interested in was doing his father's will. Doing the will of the one who sent him. Despite all the pain that was going to come, all that matters was what his father in heaven wanted. Matthew 26, verse 39. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. See, the father's plan led to the cross. Human plans were earthly bound, dealing with human powers. But God's plans were on a cosmic scale dealing with eternal reality. We know, as I was reading this this week, and just me and Claire were chatting about this passage, actually, we just both said, isn't it amazing that we have the same Heavenly Father as Jesus? We have the same Heavenly Father as Jesus. And it's his expectations, his call over our lives, that should bother us far more than those expectations that other people would put onto us. You see, the people want a saving here and now. What does Jesus offer? He offers us eternal life, salvation forever, being free forever. Human plans are all about bringing an end to things here and now. God's plans were about a new creation, a fresh start, the chance to be born again of the Spirit. So what about us? What about me? What about you? Are you living with God's expectations as first in your life? Or is it the expectations of others that drives you? See, there is no route to God's plans and purposes for us that doesn't pass through Calvary, that doesn't pass through the acceptance of what Jesus did on the cross in taking our sin. There is no way to freedom and living with godly expectations that doesn't include Jesus. Romans 10, verses 9 to 10, Paul says... If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might, not you maybe, but you will be saved. 
Human plans, human expectations are always less than what God has for us. Always less. Because they're based on human realities. You know, human expectations on us can be about achievement, about winning, about gathering more and more stuff, whether that's material stuff or qualifications or whatever it is. Now, not that those things are wrong. They may be very right that we do those things. But that isn't the biggest thing that God has for us. What do people expect of you? What do you expect of yourself? Is it of a life bathed in grace? Is it of a life of self-giving? Of loving your neighbour as yourself? Of having peace and assurance of eternity? A life of self-sacrifice, of humility, of holiness, of growing in the gifts and the fruits of the Spirit? Or is it a life based on human expectations? I can remember as a, a teenager going to a school careers fair. I don't know if anyone ever went to those things. And going around the different um, sort of, they're almost like stations, if you like, where you have to go and speak to different people about different careers. And I can remember going around the various ones, and different people were painting different pictures of my future. And some of them sounded vaguely interesting. Some of them sounded mind-numbingly boring. And some of them were just, just totally way off beam as to anything I would want to do. But it's interesting how people can put those expectations on you. They can write a story of your life over you. And none of it included God. None of it included God. I can remember a few years after then, sitting with a mortgage advisor. And he was also painting a picture over my life. It was me and Claire. We were sat there and he was saying, if you just borrowed this much extra money, you could have your ideal home, your dream home. And there was a story, there was a narrative being written, an expectation being placed over us that this is what success looked like. I can remember just after me and Claire got married, um, chatting through what our future could look like. And it involved a story that we were writing for ourselves. But interestingly, that story never involved ministry. It never involved doing any of the things that God has called us to since. It was just the expectations that we felt we should live under. See, the problem is, so often in life, we can be like the disciples, or the crowd, or the religious leaders. We plan for our own futures without seeking God for it first. And we put our own human desires overlaid on the top of what God would have for us. And God calls us to invert it and say, what is that he wants us to do? You know, as a church, we can do that as well. Our our teams and our meeting looking at putting the the vision into implementation. First of all, the community team started. In a few weeks, we'll be starting the pioneering team as well. And it's even so easy there, isn't it, to start slipping back into human ways of thinking and to say, let's measure things by human success, not by God's call over us as a church. God's plans for us, I believe, God's plan for Jesus on Palm Sunday were far, far bigger greater and more amazing than the plans and stories we can ever make up for ourselves. The cross that Jesus will die on in a few days' time places the value on human beings that says that God loves us with a passion from eternity, so much that he would give his only son to die for us. Perhaps this Easter, perhaps you just need to hear that again, that that is the value that God has placed on us, that he loves us with that passion that he sent Jesus for us. But the cross also shows us that actually we're powerless to do anything on our own. 
No human expectations, no human stories can reach God without first going through Calvary, without first going through what Jesus did for us. The cross shows us that there is greater things, a new creation to be part of. Yet, you know, it's so easy to miss all of that, to get bogged down in the human expectation stuff, to think about other people's stories that they've painted over your lives and to think, I need to fulfill what this person said or what that person said. What was Jesus interested in? One thing. What his Father in heaven wanted him to do. We have that same Heavenly Father. And so I want to ask you today, what is it that God wants you to do? I don't know how that applies to you, but I'm leaving some questions there on the screen. Do you have a sense of how God is calling you to live? Perhaps you put it off for years and you've kept living with human expectations and actually it's time to reevaluate this Easter. Are there expectations you are living under that prevent you from being all God calls you to be? Perhaps there are things that at the moment you're, you're just feeding in, you're, you're feeding into expectations that have been placed on you that actually have nothing to do with God's will for your life. Now, we can think of those things, but if we don't change anything, we're not going to get closer to what God has for us. So is there anything that God is calling you to change today? Maybe in how you think. Quite often action starts when we think differently and then we enact that out. Or is it actually that we need to start doing something or stop doing something that is preventing us from being the people God wants us to be? So I'm just going to leave those questions up just for a moment and then we're going to listen to a song together that really picks up on this theme And it talks about our value being placed in the cross, not in the stuff of this life. So if we just leave that up for a moment and then... For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Lord, help us to live our lives with your expectations on us. Not that that other people would seek to layer over us. Lord, thank you for the reminder of those words we've just heard, that the cross shows us our worth and our unworthiness at the same time. Help us as we approach this Easter time to just keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' name.